Welcome to the Melt Hammer podcast. It is episode 154. I am Mel from Melt Hammer. Hello, everybody. Thank you, as always, for joining us this week. Uh, before we get started on this week's show, I should say there is a brand new edition of Melt Hammer magazine out in the shops right now across the UK. It is counting down the 100 greatest songs of the century so far. The biggest and best songs that have defined the last 21 years of metal. I'm talking your Avenged Sevenfold, your Slipknot, your System of a Downs, your Ghosts, your Macedons, your Lamagods, your Nightwishes. They're all in there. They're all represented all the stories behind the songs that are completely defined metal in the 21st century so far. It is a huge issue. We put a lot of work into it. We're very proud of it. We're sure you will enjoy it very much. And when you go and pick up that issue, it also comes with a ton of exclusive gifts you won't find anywhere else, including a limited edition set of Iron Maiden beer mats. Uh, we've also got a specially commissioned art print of the one and only Alexi Leho from Children of Bodom. That was done by the excellent Luke Priest, who has previously done stuff for Metallica, amongst others. We also have a ghost laptop sticker and a huge album art poster pack featuring some of the most iconic album artworks from the last 21 years. It's all in there in the new issue of Metal Hammer out right now. As I said, you can find <coughs> it in shops across the UK or... Uh, you can uh, go and pick it up from tinyurl.com slash gethammer. That's tinyurl.com slash gethammer. Uh, now, you may have noticed that I'm not alone on the podcast this week from that little sneeze from someone in the background there, because I'm also joined uh, by the one and only reviews editor of Metal Hammer, Mr. Jonathan Seltzer. How are you doing, Seltzer? Yeah, I'm all right. I got woken up by 4am this morning by uh, by stupid cat so i'm kind of in a world of numbness today but um Good. Off. but Good. Um, i'm all right other than that and i'm also joined by the one and only metal hammer contributor extraordinaire mr stephen hill how are you doing steve i also was woken up by my cat early this morning i don't know if there's some kind of feline seance thing that happened last night jonathan where the two of them got together and decided that they were going to do some kind of Thing to wake us up and make this podcast more difficult but that is a spooky what a spooky thing yeah so cats have morphic resonance on the on the being a dick plane i think <laughs> that famous plane on which we all reside uh, this wasn't the podcast that we actually planned to record this week we did another one last week uh, that's tied in specifically to the new issue of Metal Hammer that's out right now, as I just mentioned. Uh, so we're going to put that podcast out next week. But we thought it was really important to uh, to acknowledge and pay tribute to Lars Goran Petrov, known as LG, uh, the iconic frontman of Entombed, who died aged 49 this week after a battle with bile duct cancer. Um, Entombed were just such a vital band in the evolution of not just extreme metal but just metal itself so much of their dna and their blueprint can still be heard all across the scene today um we're going to get into the specifics of where entombs came from how their career kind of unfolded why lg was such a vital part of that band um but uh, i wanted jonathan and, and steve with me today because they are two of the biggest entombs fans i know and i thought they'd be able to shed some really good light and context of why this is such sad news for the metal scene that uh, LG is no longer with us. Um, when did you guys both hear about Entombed to start with? Let's start with you, Jonathan. When did you first kind of have Entombed well, on your radar? I, I guess it would have been in the early 90s. Um, maybe not when um, the first album came out, uh, Left Hand Path came out, because I think like when you first, it's kind of like 1990s when I was first starting to get into death metal. And the way you get into metal is through both scenes and labels. 
so you know i was getting to everything so in the 90s i was kind of getting to everything from the florida scene like death and dare side um and obituary and um and then you know you you kind of discover labels so you want everything on the label so i was getting everything on road racer and maybe it was kind of a bit later on when i started um getting into everything eric were putting out so it would have been only about a couple of years later um and entombed one of the bands on that and so it was really interesting to see how the baton was going to getting past you know all like the differences between the florida scene and the um and the swedish scene and how they were in dialogue with each other so so when i first heard left hand path i it was something different definitely um there's kind of like a bit more different kind of heavy groove to it then of course you know they also had that you know they had a really specific sound that became super important to the whole metal scene after that uh to do with uh, sunlight studios and a pedal called the hm2 pedal so it's got this really sort of um low almost like it's been singed sound to the guitars and so that and so you know every other swedish band was, was starting to use that um and then it's it's weird because with um with them you can you can kind of hear the sound changing from a floridian sound to a sound that's particularly swedish um first of all you could hear the there's you could hear like d beats in their music which is that kind of it's sort of with discharge it's a particular sort of playing off playing off like two toms kind of drum sound that just discharge started and swedes were so into that and the kind of the crossing and that was kind of um you could, that was falling into their sound as well too the opening track actually left hand path it sounds a lot like morbid angel it's got all that kind of weird dissonance to it and then after that it, they start coming into their own sounds and yeah i was just blown away but you know at the time i was soaking everything up and every band that i was listening to had their own take on it on the genre on death metal and this was a this is another like really exciting new take that I hadn't really heard before and it was, it was so groovy but i love the way that on, on that album particularly his voice had a kind of a bit of re, you know lg's voice had a bit of reverb onto it so it kind of gave this really sort of archaic sound and he just sounded possessed um and uh, yeah i was i was totally in love from that point onwards amazing and steve I, i'm i'm gonna be a little bit presumptuous and 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 guess that you may have come in at a slightly different point um obviously Metal in the 90s, very much your bag. That's kind of where you kind of came into it all and were consuming it. So I guess as a fan of metal in the 90s and where metal was at um, at that point on a kind of more, I guess, wider, slightly mainstream level, um, can you remember the first time you heard Entombs and, and what you kind of thought of them at that time? I think the first time I became aware of them would have been in e in, in, in a, a another rock music magazine that I used to buy in the 90s. Um, and there was a studio report on Entombed in the build-up to to ride, shoot straight and speak the truth. And I remember it was around, it was the kind of period where um, I'm sure most people, all of us and most people listening, when you first get into metal, you, you look for things that are, that anything that kind of, represents or really kind of embodies what heavy metal is about is something which you are really really interested in and i remember reading this studio piece where there were these kind of long-haired guys in 
Kiss and Iron Maiden t-shirts and like Repulsion t-shirts and stuff. And they were talking about how, you know, they liked punk rock and Stiff Little Fingers as much as they liked, you know, Morbid Angel and Death Metal and stuff. And they just, there were beer cans and whiskey bottles all over these pictures. And they just looked, they just looked wild. And I remember, you know, it was probably that point in the 90s where... I was really looking for a band that were going to be like, that are kind of proudly like metal. We are a metal band, you know, and for, for the kind of bigger things that were happening around the scene at that point, I mean, Metallica had cut their hair and made load. I love that record, but it wasn't strictly a metal record. I think a lot of people were waiting on, there was a big gap between Burn My Eyes and um, The More Things Changed by Machine Head. Max had just left Sepultura you know, Phil Anselmo had overdosed in Pantera and on that tour with White Zombie. I think White Zombie was splitting up. Didn't really have a Megadeth or an Anthrax album at the time. Slayer had just done an album full of punk covers. And there was this weird little moment where for a really, really brief second, everyone sort of went, who are the band that are going to be the kind of the definitive metal band in, you know, early 1996, like late 96, early 1997. And, um, and it looked like it, it genuinely looked like it could be entombed. And I remember, um, I think the first, the first song of theirs that I would have heard would have been like this with the devil from, um, to ride, shoot straight and speak the truth. And then I also saw the video on super rock on MTV for damn deal done. And, I remember thinking this is a lot heavier than the stuff that I usually listen to. Like this is heavier than Deftones or, and it's, it's, you know, certainly more metal sounding than a lot of stuff I listen to. Like I had no real relationship with anything that you would call kind of quote unquote extreme metal at that time. I was very much, you know, Pantera, Slayer, Sepultura, Machine Head, Psycho Negative, Fear Factory. Those kind of bands were the bands that I was really, really into. And, that kind of ripping chainsaw guitar sound and old school heavy metal aesthetic, underground extreme metal feel about the band, but just this unbelievably propulsive like rhythms that they had. I just thought this is incredible. This is like a notch up from everything else that I've been listening to. And they pretty much were the first extreme metal band that I can honestly say I felt any kind of connection or affinity to. You know, at that point, I hadn't really heard Neurosis. I didn't really get something like Cradle of Filth or Emperor or, you know, any of those bands I heard, I was like, that's a little bit too much for me. Morbid Angel or Cannibal Corpse, I just felt like I, I couldn't really understand it. But the groove of Meshuggah, and I went out and bought that record and I just absolutely loved it. And then I went back and bought everything else. And that's when, like Jonathan said, all the kind of, I think those earlier records, you know, the first couple of records particularly, are much more rooted in proper, sort of the, the, the classic sound of the origins of death metal. But for me, when they brought those more kind of fuel-throttled motorheadisms, like when they put, put that up even more of a notch, I mean, in, in tomb, they're a really heavy band and, and an extreme metal band. But I think there is, there is kind of danceable and as catchy on those records as 
pretty much as ex- anything gets while still being extreme metal. And mm. they, they just, be, they, they, for me, they are the absolute perfect gateway band from that world into a load of other stuff. They could play, the, like I saw them at the Oddsfest, I saw them with Machine Head, and they went down brilliantly, and they sounded amazing on those big stages. But at the same time, they felt like a lot more dangerous than the majority of the stuff that was happening in new metal or whatever at the same time. Just a fucking great band. Yeah, that's really interesting to see hear those different uh, kind of perspectives on the way their journey kind of unwound. Um, I mean, if we look at LG's journey briefly before we kind of really dig into these albums, I mean, he's always known as a proper kind of died in the wall, cast iron, heavy fucking metal fan. Uh, he was born in 72. So if you kind of think about the time he was in his teenage years and probably discovering music, heavy metal would have been in its peak form. Um, and he was well known as a big fan of a lot of the kind of new wave of British heavy metal bands, particularly Maiden. Um, he loved Metallica, Motorhead. Uh, no surprise that he liked Motorhead, really. Uh, Bathory, uh, all those kind of hallmark metal bands that really built the cornerstones of what our world is all about. Um, and in the late 80s and early 90s, as many you know prominent musicians have done, he, he jumped around a few Swedish metal bands in those early days. Uh, he had a brief strint even as a drummer for Morbid, I think. Um, but obviously he really got going when he joined uh, a band from Stockholm who at the time were called Nihilist in 1988. Uh, but the following year they changed their name to Entombed. Um, and after their first demo in 89, they, they just hit the ground running with Left Hand, Park, Left Hand Path in uh, 1990. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing, Jonathan, that when you think about where so much of the really seminal death metal album of the late 80s and early 90s has come from, like the, the, the DNA of that first album even before we get into all the mad stuff they kind of did after that, the DNA of Left Hand Path is still kind of sewn all across the metal scene, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, that and Nihilist as well. I mean, it's funny, it's like, like both Nihilist and Entombed, they kind of sort of diff- slightly di- di- different paths. I mean, you'll, you'll find loads of bands now who refer back to Nihilist as um, their, their chief ones. Well, basically just Nihilist... Um, uh, not not rip off bands, but but you know the the whole point is to honor, you know, the, is is to pay homage to nihilist, um, and so so that whole kind of Swedish sound was you know kind of based around Stockholm, very different from the Gothenburg sound that emerged later on, has become totally important, and but but even then it's like they synthesized lots of different things, so you know they had the groove that you know maybe I was get kind of getting from. Um, Obituary and Bolt Thrower. Um, but like Steve said, they have this kind of absolute relentless propulsion. And I think you, you could hear that you could hear that in some death metal bands, but um, I think where they drew that from was kind of more of a kind of a punk thing as well. Um, so it, yeah, there's, there's so much, but particularly, you know, like I said, that HM2 pedal, the Sunlight Studio sound, you know, when when that album came out, everyone kind of wanted to record there, and um, it's become one of the signature sounds of 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 death metal ever since. Yeah, and what what's really amazing is that you could make a, an argument that their kind of evolution after uh, Left Hand Path is every bit as influential and still present in where metal is at today. Um, there's a kind of an odd little middle moment here for the second album, uh, Clandestine, where um, LG left the band. Uh, and then he came back for the third record, which would really start to properly roll along the the new 
subgenre of extreme music that we've kind of since come to know as death and roll, which is just even today absolutely fucking everywhere in the metal scene. Everywhere you look, there's bands still utilizing that whole death and roll template. Uh, and Wolverine Blues is really um, the album that kind of started to kick properly kickstart that that evolution in their sound. Um, what are you saying about Wolverine Blues, Steve? Oh, what aren't I saying about Wolverine Blues? Um, I just, I mean, like I said, getting to ride shoots jokes, speak the truth. I, you know, I I'd sort of heard there's there's a bit of an evolution in that, I think, which we will probably talk about in a second, but. Hearing a band, uh, it, it still to me feels so fresh and exciting. That album, it still has got like, I mean, again, propulsion and momentum, and just this careering, out of control locomotive of chainsaw guitar riffs that that record is. It's quite incredible. I think if I was to pick the best Entombed album for me. I think Wolverine Blues is the best collection of songs that they've ever written. I think there are like genuinely iconic moments in the history of metal on that record. I mean, you know, when you get to Jesus Christ, Lord of Flies, In Disguise, fuck on Out of Hand right at the end of that record. Like, amazing. Absolutely amazing. The riffs. Um, I mean, look at that. I've got a track listing up here. Rotten Soil, the title track, Full of Hell, Hollow Man. Out of, I mean, that's just half of them i mean i'd say i master to open it's just absolutely brilliant i think in terms of extreme metal at that period um did anything else because lots of things sound like that since then but i can tell you like from my slightly less slightly more limited perspective i guess than jonathan had i don't remember ever hearing anything that had sounded quite like that when i heard wolverine blues and it's just such a concrete fist in uh, like punch in the face so relentlessly so often i uh, it's an amazing record absolutely legit one of the one of the classic record metal records of the 90s i would say no doubt yeah i mean it was that kind of period where some of the death metal bands were starting to evolve mostly it involved bands going proggy like death and cynic and pestilence um which i think for a young um, death metal fan. I was just not getting with that really at the time. Um, but it was great. It was interesting to see how, you know, a band like Entombed could evolve. And it wasn't like a huge major like sea change or evolution. It was just there were kind of different elements in there. The, the sound was a bit more stripped down to a bit more sort of the essence. And um, but that really was a kind of evolution that I felt I could kind of really go along with at the time. Especially round about um, uh, round about the time of um, Left Hand Path, Wolverine Blues. I mean, mm. the thing is, well, I think like the, the sort of the distinction I would make with Wolverine Blues because you mentioned Boltzmann, you mentioned Obituary. I think they're great shouts for kind of and a band like Cannibal. You know, there's there's, there's groove in death metal. There's groove in Cannibal. But there's for me that Wolverine Blues. There's a difference between having a groove and. And almost having a swing that there's a kind of finger clicking cool swing to wolverine blues that i'm not really sure i'd ever heard or i you hear so rarely in extreme metal i mean particularly when you're thinking of the the, the kind of rat -a -tat -tat of um 
Cynic and Death and those kind of bands. But yeah, it, it couldn't be further from the truth, uh, further from that kind of sound. But I think even when death metal bands are groovy, they rarely have that kind of that swagger and that swing that that, in, that, that entombed it. Yeah, really. I mean, I think there was there was a really good combination there between um, Nick K. Anderson and um, LG, because. I mean, we can go through in Tombs uh, records later on, but they never really quite made the same album twice. Even though they're such a, um, you know, they've got such a place in our world. If you go through the, their catalogue, every song was kind of quite different from each other, some some more so than others. Um, so they went through so many evolutions. But LG, you know, his vocals, you know, he, he could change them to fit any kind of mood and that you know they had very different moods later on in the more kind of thrashy era as well and he just but because he like i said he like you said like he seems to ride the music wherever it takes him and you know that was very much i felt in his personality as well because there's a, there's a story about when he was uh when he left um you know um entombed during the clandestine period and, you know, there's accounts that even when he wasn't in the band, when they were playing live, he'd still be down the front uh, singing all the words back. So, you know, so he didn't really hold any grudges, but he's such a good vocalist that I think they obviously missed him when he was when he was gone. And but that's so much, I think, in LG's character that how he took that in his stride. And he just but the thing is, he just wrote everything where it was going to take him. And you could really feel that on on these records as well. It's it's a tough thing to get. I think it's one of the hardest things to get right in extreme metal is to find hooks in that. It's to find things to bring people in. Like a, a, a more casual fan like I was when I first heard them, there were hooks in their music and he provided a lot of like, even though he's got this throat ripping, throat shredding voice, you could still hear exactly what he was saying. You know, um, he wasn't an identical extreme metal vocalist. Like there are a lot of... The anti-obituary. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. But like you can, you can tell that it's him and you can understand exactly what he's saying. And that I think that's, that's quite a rare thing in extreme metal. And I think it's quite a rare thing to be able to find vocal parts that, that are memorable to people who might otherwise have no interest in in that world at all yeah i think i think there's a you know there's a lot of um death metal bands you know especially of that era um maybe death being the exception where the front man was there to provide an imperious figure of like you know like morbid angel the classic one of this like you know almost like these kind of gods looking down on humanity from above and um and you know with um say bolt thrower is just like this is war but with um with LG, who was really narrating the songs as they went along, so he kind of caught you and he kept you in the moment of every of every moment of every song, because it felt like he was kind of feeling it for the first time as he as he sang, and that was kind of very different from a lot of death metal vocalists around that time. I, I think that's a really interesting insight. Um, when you uh, look at where they kind of went after this, I guess the further into the the kind of groove, the swing, like you said, Steve, the further into the kind of like stonery, almost kind of garage rocky alt rock terrain that they went, um, you know, the, the more, I guess, divisive they became in some ways. There was certainly that, that kind of evolution they were on. 
Uh, following Wolverine Blues, they put out to ride shoot straight, shoot straight, excuse me, and speak the truth. Uh, 1997, which is a great album. It's got some really huge, huge songs on that. Steve was saying that he writes that album very highly just before we started. Um, and then after that, they did something that some felt maybe pushed that evolution a bit too far on Same Difference in 1998. Um, what do you make of that kind of latter 90s era of uh, Entombed? I'm going to come to you first, Steve. I absolutely love Same Difference. I think it's fucking brilliant and I, I think it's one of the most underrated and most unfairly maligned records in in music any music to be perfectly honest I think it's a great record I bought it pretty much the day it came out I think because I loved to ride so much and I'd seen them a few times and I was bang up for it and I knew that um Nick Anderson leaving to go off and do helicopters, which he decided he'd rather go into sort of front helicopters rather than drum for Entombed. And obviously he was the primary songwriter and the, uh, you know, big musical driving force in the band. And, you know, I, 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 I did wonder what they would do in the aftermath of that. I think a lot of people were like, oh, it's going to be make or break. And I think a lot of people did do the whole, oh, they were better when Nick Anderson was in the band for a while. But I have to say, as somebody who likes Fugazi and Slint and um, Unsane and bands like that, uh, here in Entombed, try and basically do a kind of noise rock record while still sounding like Entombed is an incredibly brave thing to do. I think even if you don't like the record, and I can understand people who are into, you know, who want just heavy music, who want really heavy records. I can understand why someone might go, this is to, not to my taste. I I can understand that. Um, but I think you've got to give any artists that go off and do something which is like such a leap. That is a massive leap. What they do on Same Difference is a bold thing to do. And I think you should always, always um, commend artists for doing that. I think you should always say, you know, well done for trying to evolve whether you think they did it successfully or not. I know a lot of people think they didn't. I mean, I've seen some really stupid comparisons to things like Soundgarden. Like, the album does not sound like Soundgarden. It doesn't sound like Soundgarden at all. They didn't go and make a post-grunge album. Like, I've read reviews where they say that, and it's absolute nonsense. I think it's a great record. And I think, actually, LG Petrov plays a massive part as to why that record is so good. Because he doesn't really change his vocal approach particularly because he's not a singer, you know, he's not, a, that that music that they're making would be kind of rife for a kind of, um, would, would work better with a, with, a, with a proper singer, a proper clean vocalist. And he doesn't really do that. And he doesn't really try and do that. So you've got this really weird mix of kind of angular post-rock and then occasionally a, a big kind of hard rock extreme or extreme metal guitar solo will come in and a big riff will come in but all the way through you've got this kind of snarling growling performance from LG Petrov which I guess on paper you would go what a weird combination but for me when you get when you get past how odd a record it is I think there's some fucking brilliant songs in that record and I, I would I would advise anyone who's gone oh that's the bad one in their back catalogue I would say you should go back and reevaluate that with different ears because it's 
it's honestly i've got it i've just got it out on vinyl before we started just to show john but i i love it i think it's a brilliant record personally wow big 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 words indeed what did what did you think of this at the time Seltz? and do you think differently of, of that album now compared well, to when it first came around well so you've got to bear in mind that this time that kind of you know the, the sort of the mid late 90s they weren't the only band that were kind of going off their template napalm death were doing it at the same time as well too and people were having to go at them and you go back to those records and those those records were absolutely great so i have no issue with um what um they did i mean obviously it was a bit of a shock because you look at the cover it looks more like we'd expect to see from a um you know a kind of a new metal, new metal band you know it's had a, had that kind of clean but distressed um typeface on it just not what we'd expect from a death metal band and then you hear the first song uh, addiction king and it starts off on like a post-punk riff like really post-punk groove and then it just goes off into like about three different areas and i remember at the time i was thinking yeah but if you're going to do this yeah maybe you should have um sing a little bit more although you know, he's it's not pure growl he kind of smooths the growl a little bit but then Go, go back to listen to it and you think, hold on a sec, you know who this does actually sound like? Not Soundgarden of Post Grunge. It sounds like Orange Goblin. Like some of the songs, they they wouldn't look at it, they wouldn't seem out of place on an Orange Goblin album. The my only my so it's a bit it's a little bit all over the place. Like they, they don't really know what they want to do. They're just trying different things out. And I totally commend them for that. I just think that the second half of the album is a bit dull. That it start it all kind of settles down and it all kind of hits the same pace. And LG's kind of on the same kind of note throughout the last... Some people think those songs are, 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 are the better written songs in the second half. I just think that after all this initial burst of energy, when they don't know what to do with it, then they kind of lock in. But it, there's not enough um, variation in the, in the second half of the record. That's my, that's my only issue with it. So I don't have an issue with, with what they did. I think every band needs to do that. You know, you know so many bands said that uh, Paradise Lost did it. Um... My play, my Billy Valentine, my, my Billy Valentine, my dying bride, my dying bride did it. This is this is the cat. This is what happens when you have a cat. <laughs> um, and yeah, but the thing is, like, whether it's a good ex whether the experiment works out or not, at least what the very least what happens when they do go back to older sound, they hit it with um, much more determination. I mean, look at um, any like I really like those those kind of groovy napalm death albums but then they but then they came back with enemy of the music business and that's still one of their greatest records they ever made and so you know they didn't quite go back to the death metal sound they came back to kind of a slightly different sound but um but so it's just some it's just something every band needs to do whether it works out well or not sure I that mean, makes I, sense. I would say really, really quickly. I mean, for the second half of the record, I don't know about that. Jack Worm is one of the best songs I've ever written. I think it's a fucking absolute banger. And that's track 11 or 12, I think, on the record. Yeah, track 12 on the record. I think that's a, one of the best songs. But yeah, I think the first half is definitely stronger. Um, but I still rate the second half quite highly as well. And also, what I would say as well is that even though Napalm Death went and did a kind of gro a groovier thing in that period, Napalm Death was still doing groove metal you know it was still like a form of there's parts of the same difference where i'm not even sure it's got anything to do with metal in any way whatsoever you know i think Entomb almost ran took the ball and, and ran with it further than yeah pretty much anyone that you just mentioned with the exception maybe a paradise lost 
the the irony of that record is it's got so many kind of bluesy leads on it that it's the kind of thing you'd expect Nikkei to be doing, considering mm. what went on to do with Helicopters, and um, and but it's not, he's not on it. It's it's yeah. kind of weird. Yeah, I think that's what surprised a lot of people. I think everyone thought, well, he's the guy who talks about all this other different non you know metal stuff, and he's more into rock music and you know, wants to go and play the helicopters. So they're going to double, they're going to go back to being really, really heavy. And they didn't do that at all. And I think that's, you know, that's cool. I rate that album very highly. It's great. The um, kind of, I guess, lazy way to talk about where things went from here is to say that they kind of began to embrace their death metal roots once again, um, as the kind of 2000s rolled in. Uh, but there was still a lot of it kind of experimentation and, and stuff going on across those remaining final run of albums that LG had in the main uh, version of Entune before we get to what happened next. Um, either of you got any specific thoughts on kind of the, the 2000s onwards run of albums from Entune? They were very Slayerific. <laughs> there was a lot of thrash in there. There was a lot of Slayer in there. Um, but still mixed in with, you know, things that only Entune can do. Um, so... Yeah, it seemed like that thrash element was kind of almost designed to purge out everything they've been doing with, um, you know, with the previous album, with um, same difference, and but it still it still sounded like entombed in um, in their own way, and and yeah, they, they just got that kind of propulsion back. And how if you're going to get that propulsion back, how are you going to do it other than getting some thrash in you? And, you <laughs> Very know, fair. You know, it's kind of and the that, purest strain of metal in many ways, isn't it? It's just the kind of most like immovable, unfuckwithable template metal office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they did, but they did fuck with it though. They they still sort of mixed merged it with their own DNA. Mm. I mean, it definitely does still. I think that album is those three albums that came in the aftermath of uh, of Same Difference, Uprising. Um, Morning Star and Inferno, I think are very are good records. Those three, I think, are really good records. Yeah. I mean, stuff Inferno, on, particularly Inferno. I mean, the fixes in from Inferno is absolutely amazing. That song is that, that's the highlight of that record for me, and I think that is that's as good a song as they've ever done. It's brilliant that song, and that is like again that kind of careering. I call it a kind of careering locomotive lo locomotive of chainsaw riffs and that is just such a, a power like it's a powerful brew that they get when they get that stuff right i mean yeah. i yeah i think they they are so good at doing that that i'm happy for them to just go let's do that but let's make it a bit thrashier let's do that but make it a bit more noisier or discordant or whatever but the bass and i think they they kept the bass of that thing i think they got to that point after the same difference and they realized what they were really really good at and those three albums for me are very good differing variants of the thing that they're really good at. But yeah, there's yeah. a thrash in, there's a bit of classic death metal. There's even a bit of like kind of arena. There's parts where they do kind of like almost like an arena on Morningstar, like a kind of arena rock version of <laughs> of like what that, that could be in a if we live in a parallel universe where death and roll played arenas or whatever, then that's probably yeah. why. <laughs> I, I thought I thought Inferno was kind of different from the two that preceded it, and it just goes to show, like, even though he's got such an identifiable voice, how versatile LG's voice was. So, Inferno, 
even though I said before that it doesn't feel like he's sermonizing, on this one he's sermonizing it and he sounds like some kind of like mad preacher. Um, well, not mad preacher, just this, but it's got this really vehement way of, of almost like preaching. And so it, it actually feels a bit like a sermon. I love that track. That's how I became a Satanist. It's such a great track. But it, it, but his voice kind of takes, you know, it's funny when you, when you, when you saw LG on stage, the last thing you would think of him is, is as imperious. But he takes on a slightly more imperious tone on the album. And I just felt that album was kind of very complete in and of itself. Um, I don't think it bore quite as much relation to um, the previous two as they did as they did to each other. Fair, fair. Um, the the, the uh, two thousands run with Entombed would uh, kind of kind of the official main version of Entombed. I guess this stuff hurts my brain. Uh, but the last the last Entombed album uh, to officially feature uh, LG was uh, 2007, Serpent Saints, The Ten Amendments. And then in 2014, things go a bit, uh, they go a bit weird. Um, there's obviously been years of lineup shuffles by this point anyway, but it's in 2014 that Entombed, as we know them, effectively split in two. Uh, guitarist Alex Hellid owns the rights to the Entombed name, so he would continue to play sporadic tours and performances with a new band under the Entombed moniker. Uh, well, LG and two other members of Entombed at that point would go on to form Entombed AD and they would release three more studio albums uh, under the Entombed AD banner, the final one being 2019's Bowels of Earth. Um, have you guys got any specific, specific excuse me, thoughts on the kind of Entombed AD era? It kind of was a bit of a strange way for the band to, to end, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I actually interviewed him LG around the time of the breakup and the split into two different bands and it was actually quite a um, slightly frustrating experience not because he wasn't anything other than absolutely charming and funny and and lovely it's just that he didn't really have much of um, an, an opinion on he, he seems bewildered by the whole thing as anyone else and he just he just said it was just kind of like shit happens really and it was frustrating because I couldn't really get a proper narrative out of him, not because he was frustrating himself. And like I said, in the way that, you know, when he got, when he left the band the first time around, he kind of just very, t t kind of took it in his stride. Obviously, you know, he was sad that the, um, that the two, that the band is kind of split into two. And, but he was just determined to carry on. And um, he wasn't going to dwell on it. Um, so it's all a little bit murky about what the kind of fissure was between the two people and it probably helped that you know entombed minus the ad weren't really um putting out records they they did a few special live shows so it didn't get to that point of like with certain bands like Batushka, where it all becomes starts to become a little bit sort of sordid the whole kind of interfighting mm -hmm. and LG is just not the kind of person to hold a grudge or or, or anything like that. So he just continued with um, three really good uh, records that um, they just hit their own groove. And there were great, you know, there were great records that came from that that sort of history. Um, you know, they had a little bit more richness of tone, you know, kind of a few more strings and... Um, but you know he was just lg doing exactly what he was born to do really and continuing and and um not trying to prove a point just 
like you said, he loved heavy metal. He wanted to make heavy metal, so he fucking made heavy metal. He seems like kind of from everything you said. I, ne- I never met LG. I know you met him a few times, Jonathan, but it just seems like, you know, we kind of talk about characters in in heavy metal, and I actually think Steve did a really good job of this in in the obituary that he did that you can read on yeah. the Hammer site right now. Um, but LG just really just seemed like the kind of phrase like one of us is a bit of a cliche in metal, I think. But he really just seemed like a dude who just fucking loves playing heavy metal and happens to be really, really good at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was going to say, I mean, I, I never interviewed him or got to speak to him, but I did see him um, with a whiskey bottle in his hand running around screaming um, out the front of the Milton Keynes Bowl during the Ozfest in 1998. And being like 18 and massively intimidated, easily intimidated at the time, I didn't go up and say anything to him. But he was just like loving watching Ozzy Osbourne and was like smashing a bottle of Jack Daniels. And I was like, I mean, you know, Fred Durst wasn't doing that that day or whatever. Do you know, like, you know, you didn't see many of the other people from that. You wouldn't see Maynard James Keenan coming out the front and doing that. Do you know what I mean? So, there, there <laughs> Could you no, yeah, there, there, there didn't seem to be any kind of like filter about him wanting to be you know uh, a personality or a rock star or whatever he was you know just a guy who seemed to have a like a you know a genuine love of metal and i think the fact that those entombed ad albums are so enjoyable i mean do they stack up against the really really best stuff that entombed put out probably not but when they come on they sound great and he sounds great on them and they do the thing again the thing that entombed do and the thing that lg did he does it really well on those records um you know yeah it's not wolverine blues and it's not left hand path but still fucking great like still when it's on you're like this is this this sounds fucking great and there's still a hell of a lot of bands that are a lot younger than he was when they came out who are trying to do that thing that he was doing a long time ago and you know and not managing it um Mm. But I do, I mean, you know, I, it's a weird one that Entombed would break up in that way and they wouldn't, I mean, I, I always find that you never really, you never really know the true story when it's just like some fracturing of a band. And yeah, I don't understand why the members of Entombed would want to be Entombed without him fronting them, to be perfectly honest. I think it's it's always a weird thing to me when one person gets left out of a reunion or you know, a band carry on. Oh, I know it wasn't a reunion because they were initially doing it together or whatever. But when, like, a kind of, you want to see the classic lineup of the band, I don't understand why the other members of Entombed would even think it would be a good idea to try and do their mm. band without him fronting it. So for them to actually go, you have to go and find another vessel for you to do this thing. It's very strange. I mean, I'm not pointing fingers and I'm not blaming anyone. I don't know enough about it because there doesn't appear to be that much information about it at all, really. But I can't understand the mindset that would have an minute. I don't remember, like, fans really taking sides, to be honest. I I remember, like, people uh, being excited that they could go and see Entombed with that kind of original lineup um, and people like it Entombed AD. But another, like you said, what you said about um, LG being at the festival just really hitting a bottle of whiskey, you know, he he didn't have any kind of self consciousness. He wasn't like kind of a Dave Vincent character wants to be imposing. He just it was just like a guy just seemed to like was like couldn't really believe his luck. 
that he'd been making metal for the last 20 years. And, you know, he, he didn't take himself too seriously, but that actually is why he was such a good vocalist, because not having that kind of self-awareness, you know, of like, you know, stature or whatever, that, what, that is what allowed him to kind of ride the music in the way that he did. That I, I think people who are like, you know, like this kind of like sword in the stone kind of vocalists, they they couldn't do you know those those kind of imposing vocalists. He could ride it in a way that um, uh, that other death metal vocalists couldn't. Like I said before, I think yeah. I remember the first time I met him. It was a weird occasion because it was on the Morningstar on tour, and they're playing the Underworld, and it was the day. It was actually nine eleven two thousand and one. So that was a really strange, weird day. Like knowing what had happened, going to see a gig. Um, then everyone gone upstairs to watch the um, TV in the World's End afterwards. That was a very strange experience. And That's... yeah, and the last time the last time I met him was actually in Uppsala, when I was at the uh, Watain show for the launch of the World Hunt. And it's weird. Uh, I know they all like black metal, but of course, death and black metal, particularly when entombed around, had a very weird relationship because. I guess in terms of one of the bands that the black metal people, you know, in the second wave of black metal were kind of anti, they were one of the bands that were calling life metal because it looked as though they were having fun. Uh, but obviously, you know, no, um, no, you know, no, no grudges held there either. And he was just like, just really happy to be there with his mates in Mortain, watching Mortain, walking around Uppsala and um, yeah, just great company and just a just good, good chill guy to be around. And, and and there's this little bit in your head. It's like, yeah, but you're fuck, but fuck me, you're LG, you're LG, and it's like he'd be like, yeah, huh, you what, huh, me, yeah, you know, <laughs> it just like I said, he just, he, like I said, he just took everything in his stride. And I think, you know, when when he got diagnosed, um, he helped, he, he took that with such grace and in such characteristic fashion that it's just again, shit happens. It's like, what you know, what can you do? He was clearly a really beloved um, part of metal's history and just of the metal scene right up until the day he passed away. I mean, you only need to go and look at all the tributes across metal from literally generations of metal bands to see what a uh, what an amazing uh, character he was. And I guess to finish, if there's anyone listening to this podcast that really doesn't know where to start with Entombed, I know we kind of talked through the back catalogue here and that, but there are still people out there that probably haven't, delved into entering properly yet is it really just a case of just start at the source and just gone from there i think you could do i mean i my i think my personal favorite record is to ride shoot straight and speak the truth i feel like that's a really good starting point but then i don't think you can argue with wolverine blues being probably the best representation of what they've done and maybe the best written collection of songs that they've done but yeah i mean you need yeah for me they've got at least four or five albums that you really must hear if you consider yourself a serious fan of heavy music. You you need to hear those records. And just to kind of, before we kind of close up and everything, the one thing we haven't really mentioned as well is that despite the amount of inactivity towards the mid to late noughties and into all the troubles in the last decade or so that they've had, they still, you know, remain one of the most influential bands in what modern metal sounds like now. I mean, everyone from Nails to Magruder Grind to Leech 
to track them to Black Breath to you know that to Cavella Tack. Mother's got a Cavella Tack T-shirt on. Like the amount of bands, you know, they, they Converge covered them. Converge don't cover many bands, and you know, like the fact that the sound that they sort of invented and created over 25 years ago, like 30 years ago, has been totally co-opted and taken and like, I don't, you know, I don't want to say ripped off completely, but the fact that they have been so influential to a bunch of hardcore kids in America, all pigs must die, all that, like, you know, that, you know, there are every week I get a band dropping my inbox with an album coming out where I'm like, you're a, hardcore kids who listen to in tunes and that's what you do and it's become its own genre now do you know what i mean in the same way as like discharge became a thing that loads of people ripped off i feel like entombed core is a very real thing today and that's without yeah. even really playing that much or releasing albums or anything you know yeah i mean Discharge is a good, good example I mean, obviously because you could hear a little bit of discharge in entombed as well too but like, you know, there are bands who are, who are like rip off Nihilus, and they'll say they're ripping off Nihilus in the same way. Those bands, all those discord bands that start with dis, uh, that will definitely will, will tell you that they're happily ripping off um, Discharge. It's um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of death metal bands that would just say that's that's what they're here to do is to play like Nihilist and Early Entombed. There you go, unbelievable band, unbelievable legacy. And uh, as I said, if you want to read more about LG and Entombed, uh, we've got a big feature coming up in the next issue of Metal Hammer. And you can read Steve's excellent words over on the Metal Hammer website right now. Uh, next week, we'll be celebrating the new issue of Metal Hammer by bringing you the ultimate 2000. No, I've written that down wrong. The ultimate 21st century heavy metal playlist. Uh, LI and Steve debated it, and uh, things got almost heated at points during the, the podcast where we put this together. We recorded it last week. It's a fun listen. Uh, we hope you're going to enjoy it, and that'll be out next week. In the meantime, don't forget to pick up that aforementioned new issue, and uh, stay safe and look after each other, everybody. We will see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.